All right, welcome along to the RT Soccer Podcast. I'm Raf Giello alongside Jim McMahon of RT Sport Online. And we've also got Conan Byrne with us uh, for this week's episode. We're going to be joined by journalist David Snade a little bit later on when we're going to talk about the League of Ireland clubs in Europe. Some very good results in most cases. Unfortunately for Sligo, it looks like their journey in the Europa Conference League is coming to an end. And then Chief Football Writer of the Independent, Miguel Delaney, is going to join us a lot later on to talk about the Premier League weekend. And that is where we're going to start Jim I think just in terms of the more the Irish interests Mm. uh, in general obviously we're back to the concepts of Super Sundays and all this happening now I mean did that kind of capture your own attention? Oh it did yeah I mean a bit earlier than uh, expected I think this is the earliest start that the that the Premier League um, has ever had I think I I checked it out there I think the Premier League did start on the 7th of August in 1999 so I, I just wanted to check when was the 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 earliest start. Uh, started on Friday night, obviously with Arsenal having a a good win um, over Crystal Palace two 0 and then Liverpool, the team that most people expect will either finish first or second uh, this year, uh, struggle somewhat and be somewhat off the pace against Fulham, who more than deserved their draw. On, on Saturday and then in the afternoon then to, to get to the Irish angle in the afternoon then we had Tottenham the team that most people expect will be the best of the rest from after the top two uh, but I, I actually think Tottenham could, could might even do a little bit better than that but uh, they beat Southampton 4-1 and it was uh, somewhat of a blessing in disguise even though he really wasn't really at, at fault at all for the goals Gavin Bizzuno, uh had four Put past him on Saturday, so uh, it was a, it was a bit of a, a, a toughish uh, afternoon at the office for Southampton. Again, a club as well that you know some people are tipping uh, could could find the going a bit tough this year um, in the league. And then the other I suppose interest for Irish people on on Irish fans on Saturday was Nathan Collins uh, playing for playing for Wolves, but uh, unfortunately they too lost out on the on the opening afternoon so um you know so a bit of an up and down weekend so far but uh, an earlier than expected start probably maybe has caught some people a little off guard but uh because of the world cup coming in december that's the reason why so it's it's an awful long way to go between now and the 28th of may next year yeah, certainly. But uh, Conan, maybe on the first bits uh, of Irish interest, obviously in the Arsenal-Crystal Palace game, there weren't uh, any Irish eligible players really involved in that. But the following day, obviously, there was a lot of focus on Liverpool. And then Shane Duffy made a very, very late cameo. So obviously going on loan from Brighton to Fulham. What did you make of his move there? I mean, I think there was always a sense that, that he possibly couldn't be um, sent out on loan by Brighton. And uh, obviously Fulham as a promoted club, you think over the season, he might actually get a good few minutes compared to his chance at Brighton, where they have a very established centre-back pairing. Yeah, do you know, with Fulham, I I was very impressed with their back line yesterday. I think they marshalled it very, very well. There was plenty of communication between defensive midfield in terms of the press that was going on. They didn't allow Liverpool on the ball at all um, for long periods of the game. Um, it's as if when they took the lead, they kind of sat back a little bit, trying to hold on to the, to the lead um, from from a Fulham point of view instead of keep keep doing what they were doing. Um, Mitrovic was an absolute handful. It was absolutely excellent. But as I said, with Shane Duffy, I think he was brought on probably just to make sure that Liverpool didn't get that third goal. And then... Jordan Henderson hits a 30-yard shot from outside the box as soon as he comes on and nearly wins it for Liverpool. So wouldn't have been the best uh, debut for Shane Duffy. But 
yeah, I was impressed with 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 as I said, Anderson was very good at the back um for Fulham. So I don't know whether he'll get in ahead of him. He plays out from the back really, really well. I'm very confident on the ball. Um, very good man marker too. Um so yeah, I think it'll take time for him to get it to, to get some minutes on um in that Fulham team. Um given the way that they, they started the game, I'm sure the manager will, will, will want to 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 give his sides give his side some time. Um but yeah, I was it, it was a bit of a it's a good move for him in the sense that he's gone to a Premier Division club, Raf. You know, it's not a case that he's dropping down a division um, like other players that, that we'll probably talk about later on, that he's still playing at the highest level and just hopefully that he'll be able to to get some minutes and uh, and kick on with Fulham. Yeah, and uh, one of the other uh, bits of Irish interest, of course, is the, one of the games you were watching, which was, as uh, as Jim outlined there, the Spurs-Southampton game, of course, um, for Spurs and uh, Matt Doherty, um, who's obviously part of that squad, hopefully won't have the same injury issues he had last season. Uh, um, you know, they went on 1-4-1 and kind of underlined their credentials, but for Southampton... Uh, Gavin Bazuni didn't have a bad game by all accounts. It was more, and there was, and I, I saw all the goals. Obviously, I saw the highlights, and we couldn't really do anything about any of them. But he's going to have his work cut out this season because Southampton clearly can't defend. No, and even mm. some of the even some of the players are putting in in their own net as well. Um, when that was which was shocking defended by Salisu, Salisu, should I say? But um, yeah, I, I I was I was very impressed with Pizzuno, even though he conceded the four goals. He looked very assured. Again, communicated with his back four. You could see him pointing and shouting at various times. Um, couldn't do nothing about the goals. But when you're coming up against Kulisevsky and Son and Kane, you're not going to come up against harder harder opposition and attacking players than that. Um, so I think we'll judge him over the next couple of weeks when perhaps he's a uh, when he makes a couple of world class saves and stop. Uh, yeah, just you can't. I don't think you can fault him, and I don't think any and um, Hessenthal will fault him over the performance on Saturday because he could do nothing about the goals. Um, with Matt Doherty, I um, obviously he hasn't. Uh, he's been injured over the last number of months. And he, he he made a cameo towards the end of the game, but with Emerson Royal, I think. Um, and if you're going to compare the two players, I think Matt Doherty will be will be head and shoulders above Emerson Royal. I didn't think he had a great game, even though they won four one. Um, so and with Conte obviously playing um, Matt Doherty last year and doing really really well in that team when they went on that fantastic run towards the end of last season and Matt Doherty was was part of that. I'd I'd, I'd suspect Doherty will be getting a lot of game time. Um, that's unless Jed Spence does particularly well um, in training and and in in some of his cameo roles. But no, I expect Doherty to 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 nail down that right wing back position for Spurs going forward. Yeah, and I think David Snaid has uh, joined us now. How are you keeping? Morning, morning. Like Paul's goals, late one into the box. Yeah, no, uh, you, you didn't have to fly in through Shannon or anything and then just have a statement prepared for us, did you? No, no. I was, I'll, although, in fairness, if needs be, I was kind of going on to the lads and shoot me just to kind of get a template. <laughs> yeah, they have a perfect one. Yeah, we were just um, we were just talking before we get on to the League of Ireland clubs in Europe. We're just talking through the um, the Irish side of the Premier League in terms of the and Championship, etc. In terms of players involved, and uh, we were just talking about Bazunu there, but also Nathan Collins making his competitive Wolves debut as well, which in a match I was watching when they lost Leeds. Like it's a great. Um, I suppose it's a great endorsement for him that straight away Bruno Lage kind of put him into the starting eleven, and Connor Cody, the longtime captain who seems to be on his way to Everton anyway, uh, was sort of dropped, and they've gone to a back four. So there's a lot of trust in him being put, I suppose. 
Yeah, I suppose it's it's one of them where like even during even during preseason, like a lot of talk was well, how is it actually going to work? How is the defense going to shape up? It seemed as if looking at from the outside, it seemed as if Cody was the one who right, he's the captain, he's the linchpin, and everything kind of revolves around him. But you kind of wonder and things obviously a lot of things can play out in the background a little bit. You wonder, did they kind of go in hard on for Nathan Collins now because they kind of realized that there was a chance Cody was going to be gone and they needed someone in there. Like that's kind of maybe just a sense that I'm beginning to get a little bit now. I think they kind of realized something was was brewing with with, with Connor Cody. Because even in preseason, when a couple of their games, they kind of fluctuated between different formations, but also personnel rather than you would think if, if you're going to embed a new player or it was getting me in quickly, but he was kind of not so much in and out, but they were mixing and matching. And I kind of got the sense now that maybe as tends to be the case, stuff can be happening behind the scenes and it's now coming coming to a head that, that Cody is leaving. But I would also imagine, I would also imagine that they've kind of realised what they have in, in Nathan Collins as a player. Like, Obviously, the due diligence was would have been would have been getting done, and you're not going to be a captain of a side like Stoke in a, in a championship at 18 years of age if you haven't got something about you. And then just also, also I'd say what could have stood to him a little bit for, from last year was just how just how patient he was in terms of like he, there was no sign of him getting antsy or traumatized out of pram when he wasn't able to dislodge Burnley's kind of Alter, me and Tarkovsky. Like he kind of was willing to bide his time a little bit and kind of just keep on working away. And even when Burnley were struggling, like there was no other sense that he was being a disruptive presence or, or anything like that. And yeah, obviously then the end of the season that he had with Ireland, clearly that would have obviously then come to the fore for, for, for people's thinking because obviously Leicester City then stepped up their interest in him. And again, maybe that was perhaps why Wolves had to, maybe they had to then say, well, you know what, we, we can't miss out on, on a target when they know that he was um, primed for possibly for somewhere else as well. So, yeah, it's shaping up now with Cody leaving. That's going to be even more game time for him. And he's going to have to, he is going to have to hit the ground running. Disappointing results, especially when you've when you've taken the lead at the weekend. But it's it's going to be another big season. But, like, you kind of sense with him that he, he can take it on. That he, he rises to these challenges and you just hope that there's going to be difficult moments. He's settling into a new club. You just hope that he can he can meet a head-on as he has pretty much every other challenge since he's come to England. Yeah, and he was decent over the 90 minutes. I don't think, pretty much like Gavin Bazuna, I don't think any of the goals really were, you know, he wasn't exactly involved or at fault for any of them. But uh, we'll come back to the Premier League in more detail Miguel Delaney a little bit later on, but uh, down in the championship, of course, plenty of Irish goals down there. Shane Long, James McLean, Sammy Smodzic and Jimmy Dunn also all on target for their clubs. And then also Jason Knight in League One. Uh, this is an interesting one, uh, David. Like I think we would have thought by now he would have left Derby County. And then I was just looking at the lineup against Charlton. He's there right back. I know. I know. It's like Irish fans just want to see him. Get a move because they can see the potential that's that's in there. If you go back to that with the last the Luxembourg game away from home when he came off the bench and just made such an impact. But obviously that was at a point in the time with Derby where even look at last season, maybe a victim of his own versatility where he wasn't playing all the time. He actually got dropped out of the team for a little bit just because he had been playing so much. Like I think the timing is so important in football in terms of transfers. And I know Newcastle were 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 kind of looking in and around even before say the takeover there. I don't think that could be something that maybe 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 kind of looked at again, but I just think that that ship might have sailed. I think I know 
Patrick Vieira and Crystal Palace were were assessing that as well. They, that was one that was was being looked at, but again, that just seems to have gone quiet. But you just like he he still has time on his side, but what's gone on with Derby and the, the state they're in now after obviously the new owners and all the rest of it and for his own just for his own sense of progress he just hope he hope he gets a move but then at the same time he can't be making one for the sake of it just to get back up to the championship he it is about picking the right move for him where he's going to be playing regularly and and testing himself and being able to improve but it's just it's it is a big couple of weeks for him I think just in terms of playing but then he's also if you're looking at it and it's if you're if he's looking at it from the point of view of he has to look at it from the point of view of what's best for his career, not just what's best in the short term in terms of Ireland. Like he, if he plays for Derby County over the next few weeks, he knows he's not going to lose his place in the Ireland squad. Stephen Kenny has shown where if there's lads who are playing at that level who he believes are capable of playing higher and have that potential, then he'll do it. And he's obviously been a key part of the key part of Stephen Kenny's squad. So if the right move doesn't come about from, I don't think he should be just saying, I have to get out of Derby because it's in League One and it's a club going through a lot of struggles because making the right move could maybe be detrimental to him as well. He has to maybe just make sure that what happens next is is basically going to suit him because, again, like Stephen Kenny spoke about this last week when he was um, in Tullamore when he, he spoke to the media last week and he said, like, leaving the, the last order can't be felt that doesn't move imminent for, for Jason. So something has obviously happened there where, again, as is the way in football, there can be moving plates and things don't go smoothly, but a move did seem to be imminent and it hasn't happened, but now it just has to be the right one, not going for the sake of it, because that could be more detrimental for him. Yeah, and, and Colin, in terms of the level that you feel, if he does make the move, as, as David says there, and where he potentially lands, I mean, obviously he's been linked with sort of mid to lower Premier League clubs, but also um, he's you know he's played in the Championship before, he knows that level, and you would imagine he's more than good enough to be up in the kind of higher end of, higher end of the Championship. There was a link with Birmingham City a bit lower down the end, just I think as a John Eustace, but uh, where do you think right now in his career, in terms of making sure he gets game time, but also that he's playing at a level that does match his potential where do you feel more or less it'd be good a good landing ground would be for him I think he needs to start playing playing this right position um, I don't know if many people yeah. are going to be watching him playing at, playing at right back um, and they'd be interested to know why he's playing at right back and why he isn't playing in his natural position in central midfield um, he reminds me of of I can understand why Patrick Vieira was after him because he kind of reminds me a bit like Conor Gallagher the way he gets around the pitch and his energy and work rate Um. But yeah, look, with, with with Jason, there's not many Premier Division clubs that might look down on at League One with a possibility of taking them from League One and starting them in the Premier League. Um, that said, he did it fantastically well in the Championship last year. Brilliant for Ireland, as David said there, his game against Lux- the game when he came on against Luxembourg, he completely changed it. He was magnificent. And we all know his potential. Um, but I think his next his next move would probably be a little stepping stone, a little bit like Josh Cullen. Mm-hmm. Um, the way I think Josh Cullen has done really really well at Burnley but that's not his level I think we all can agree that he's going to be he's a Premier Division player um, and I think Jason Knight will, may, may have to do the same go back up into the Championship get a game a season or two under his belt and then move on again um, because if you're asking a manager to take in a Premier Division manager to take in a player a player from League One albeit he's just he's just gone there um, no signings has been, nobody has, has has taken the plunge as yet um, I don't think he's going to go straight into a starting 11 in the Premier League. Um, so, yeah, I think a stepping stone is probably stepping stone is probably the, the right course of action for Jason Knight now. Um, nail down his central midfield position in that team 
and then as hopefully with like Josh Cullen then get a good uh, a bigger move out of that yeah and then the other one before we talk about the League of Ireland clubs in Europe it is Jamie McGrath going on loan to Dundee United obviously he knows Scottish football well having spent his time at St Mirren doing really well before getting his move to Wigan in League One uh, or, and they obviously got promoted but he never really got game time when he was mm. there and then obviously they moved him on it's a curious situation Conan yeah, Jamie McGrath is the type of player that you'd like to see in the continent. Um, just his ability on the ball. And, it, and it's a bit like Jack Bourne in the sense that when you go down down the leagues in England, it's it's cutthroat. It's You don't get a second on the ball. Pitches aren't as, as good either. Um, and with Jamie, he just didn't get the, he didn't get the opportunity, if I'm being completely honest, Raph. Um, and now he's gone back up, up to Scotland, came off the bench there in, in their game against AZ Alkmaar. And uh, did a magnificent turn for the for for the for I think it was Stevenson for the for the goal, um, to to beat the one nil Mag- magnificent result consider for Scottish football considering the the Motherwell um, scenario with with Sligo Rovers, um, he started yesterday, um, albeit they were they were defeated one nil to Livingston, but he he got the ninety minutes under his belt, and I think that's what he needs. He needs game time, um, but he's the type of player that can change a game in an instant. He's absolutely magnificent. I, I saw Dundee United real. Um, when they signed him, they showed him little clips of, of what Jamie McGrath was like. And I remember he, they showed him a game uh, against Dundalk a couple of years ago when he was only 19. And I think that was the reason why Stephen Kenny signed him. He went by about four or five players. And instead of shooting, when he went by all those players, he laid it off mm-hmm. to Aaron Green, who, who missed the target. Um, but yeah, Jamie McGrath has all the potential in the world. Absolutely fantastic player. Brilliant off the pitch. Um, great determination has his Ireland caps probably should um, feel that he, he he should be still in the squad and getting more um, but he needs to be playing at the right level and hopefully he can he can find that now with Monday United and, and um, kick on from there yeah I was just actually kind of curious actually David like um, obviously you haven't spoken to Jim Goodwin a few months ago obviously he really rates um, he really rates McGrath and I think he was interested in bringing him to Aberdeen but obviously uh um, Grass decided to go down the Dundee United road. Yeah, like it was again. It's it's a bit of a not so much a strange one, but just just how the move to Wigan has just totally flopped from in the sense that he he's barely got a kick. You know, I know obviously when he when he arrived at Wigan, they were in the middle of a promotion a promotion push, but like it just seems very strange that he hasn't even been given an opportunity. And it was something that even Stephen Kenny said last week where. Like was put to him that you know he hasn't really kicked on, and Stephen being Stephen, the way he responded was, well, it hasn't. It's not a case he hasn't kicked on. It's just he hasn't kicked the ball, you know. <laughs> like and it's, but that's the truth of it. Because I remember, obviously, when he went over to Scotland from seeing him playing the League of Ireland, and like what Colin says, like you looked at him and you're like, this fella has so much ability, he's like flair, but he's added so much more to his game, and maybe he, he always had it when he was at the League of Ireland, clearly he did in terms of the capability, but didn't quite need it. But just being there for his Ireland full debut in Port- against Portugal and Farrell and just seeing just how clever he is defensively and how much ground he can cover and just how he gets about the place. I'll be honest, I didn't think that he had that element to his game. I thought that might be something that could actually hold him back in terms of maybe managers might see him as a bit of a luxury almost, that he has all the, the skills and all the rest, but can't quite do the rest of it but like when you speak to managers no it's the op- not so much the opposite but he is he is the package the full package and that you would have been tailor made you would say to be to be in a side going for promotion in league one and like what Conan says as well like this isn't a lad who's going to go into a dressing room and be a disruption like he's not going to be 
getting left out because he's a bad egg. He's the total, total opposite. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm sure next time you speak to Gary Rogers on the podcast, he'll tell you about all the car journeys you would have shared with him and what a down to earth lad he is, you know? And mm-hmm. like he really is. And I think just playing games, like we mentioned there, Josh Cullen earlier. And like I spoke to Josh Cullen last week and I just thought, I just said it to him, I was like, this must be the most confident you feel in your career. And, and he just, he literally just said, it, it's about playing football. It's just about playing games and feeling confident in your body and what you know you can literally stuff like how far you can push yourself, what you can play through and what you can do and and realise what you're capable of. And I think that's what Jamie McGrath needs now. I think he just needed to go and he knows now. Might use the only thing, oh, why is he going to Dundee? Like maybe there could have been that move to go to somewhere else, but I think he just needed to go somewhere in the short term and just play football again and get games and get minutes because no matter how good of a lad he is, his confidence must have taken an absolute battering over the last few months from being in a position where he was that Jason Knight figure in terms of where you look at Jason Knight in the Ireland squad, you think that's the he fits into that system with Stephen Kenny, with say Troy Parrott, and if it's a Michael Obafemi leading the line. Like Jamie McGrath was the one who in that system was perfect in terms of being able to get forward, get back, be that extra man in midfield and still provide attack. And yet since like this year he gets dropped Stephen Kenny had to he just dropped him because he wasn't playing in the March games didn't play again and, and is out of the picture in June, in June and it just shows you like you, you, momentum is so important and you just have to try and get it back and get get games again and get that rhythm going because there's a real good player there and again with our Ireland hat on like we need someone like Jamie McGrath to be playing because he's going to be such a crucial figure for that squad he just offers so many different variables in that team like yeah, we'll see. We'll see how he gets on. Now we're going to talk about the League of Ireland clubs in Europe. And Jim, I suppose, largely before we get into detail on it, it's a kind of a story of pretty largely pretty good on the pitch in terms of results. And Pat's obviously the uh, you know yeah. pulling off a, one of the more famous away victories on the road yeah. for a League of Ireland club. And then of course Shamrock Rovers, uh, you know, getting a good home win and one step or one foot hopefully in the uh, group stages of the mm. Europa Conference League. Um, and then I think on top of it as well, uh, travel to being sort of like another uh, another element that was sort of like a, a subplot before and after some of those games. That's right. We had um, Scoopy uh, probably weren't aware of the fact that in spite of Ireland as a country has come on and that there is a very good road from Shannon up to Dublin and that you can you can get there in jig time. And uh, then we had Pats not able to get back after their brilliant displays. Uh, not able to get back to Dublin until yesterday morning, until Sunday morning. And that forced the match with Shelburne not to go ahead. And uh, Shells weren't happy about that because the match was originally due to take place on Friday. So uh, not quite a, a planes, trains and automobile saga, but uh, certainly much to talk about uh, about stuff off the pitch. But uh, certainly on it, I, I think St. Pat's result is probably one of the great outcomes of a uh, for a side in for a league of ireland side in european competition over the past couple of years and uh it would be great shame now if if they can see the deal even though it it will be tough you know that goes without saying on thursday night and i think for shamrock rovers to get that third goal late on and a cracking goal it was it just gives them that little bit of a that just that little bit of, of an extra cushion uh, against the North Macedonian side, who, in fairness, were I thought quite decent in the second half the other night in Tala. And as for Sligo Rovers, well, I mean the game was up pretty early, going two goals down pretty early. 
couple of injuries, uh, the tie is over. But look, it's eight it's eight hundred and fifty thousand in the bank for Sligo, and hopefully with the packed uh, crowd, uh, packed attendance at the showgrounds on Thursday night, that uh, that they can at least put up a good showing. Yeah, and so we'll start off on Pats. So going away to CSK, Sophia winning one nil. Serge Atakai with the goal in the eighty seventh minute, a great moment, uh, just as he as he kind of got through and then uh, put the ball in the back of the net. And uh, Conan, I suppose it was built on a very disciplined performance, and Joe Redmond in particular, his defensive stature at the back, he was he was immense. He's been absolutely superb, Raf, um, throughout this throughout the season. Um, but mainly in the last couple of games in Europe, he's been absolutely superb because they've reverted to a back three um, with wing backs and then the box in midfield with, with Owen Doyle leading the line up front. And he's just marshaled it so well. I think the captain's armband that's been put on him since the European game against Mura at home has really uh, brought him forward because um, his leadership qualities on the pitch and in with Gravosti and, and Brockbank either side of him He's been absolutely immense. Um, Garces, who, who scores for fun in, in the Bulgarian league, didn't get a kick. Um, now, I think I don't think uh, Garces was was expecting such a tough tough game against Joe Redmond, so he might heal up his game. Look, CSKA, Sofia, I think on the night were, were really poor, very lethargic. They played like it was a pre-season friendly. Probably thought, like Muir, that it was going to be a, a walk in the park for them. And look, it wasn't at all. Uh, they didn't play their Bulgarian international, Georgi Yomov. He only came on at halftime. Again, he didn't do much, but I expect him to start on Thursday. Um, he's going to be a very, very good player. Um, just in that in that 10 position, kind of create chances. And, and Bradley Denoyer, the left back, who, who is so important for CSK Sofia going forward because his pace is absolutely electric and frightening. But then you have Barry Cotter, who's... who's who went from um, toe for toe and, and made a crucial interception in the first half when when Denier thought he had had got in got in behind him. So that's a, a good tussle to watch out for in Tala. From a St. Pat point of view, it was a, a, a remarkable victory away from home, but that's our kind of view city's victories away from home and not doing the job at home. Um, talking to the man here who's, who's, who played out in Legia Warsaw, we had a fantastic one-all draw away and then got bat- battered 5-0 in Tala. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that, that that has to be taken into context here is that St. Pat's have played 10 games away from Richmond Park, but at a, at a home, home stadium and, they've lo- and they haven't gone, they, they haven't won a game in those 10 games. Um, like even in Tallinn, in the last three, they've, they've got beaten 5-0 by, by Legia Warsaw, 3-0 by Hanover and 3-1 by Carpathy Leave. So um, it's going to be it, it, European nights in, in Richmond Park are massive for the club, for the fans. You're on top of the pitch, intimidating for the opposition players. When you're in Tallaght, it's like a, nor- a, a normal venue. You're playing away from home um, from a St. Pat's point of view. So it's a hindrance straight away. Um, but they have the they have a 1-0 win to, 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 to grasp onto. It didn't, like CSK are going to improve. I think we can, we can all agree on that. Um, but I think Joe Nang, Joe Redmond, Adam O'Reilly, uh, that that heart, that kind of spine of the team are going to be so crucial. And just just going to the goal, Raf, very quickly. Like there, a, a lot has been talked about about the goal itself and Serge Atakai's run and all, but I think the ball by Adam O'Reilly was 
was fantastic as well because it wasn't as if he was just booting it down the pitch. He put a bit of spin on it to spin back and then it made the defender. The defender didn't realize what it was. And he just put like he didn't follow through and it. it was just a punch ball. And the defender just thought it was a long ball over the top, tried to head it back, didn't get enough on it. And, and um Atakai ran through and, and very bravely put it um went around the keeper and put it put it home. So um yeah I think I've met we mentioned Joe O'Reilly or Joe Redmond, but Adam O'Reilly is has been absolutely incredible. Yeah, and the template for this second leg, as you said, obviously the game is taking place in Tala as opposed to Richmond Park. And does that almost automatically turn it into sort of that sort of well that presume they're going to have they're going to have to counterattack anyway, given the fact that it's CSKA who are are goal down in the tie, but that it almost feels like another away tie. So it's almost same template as in Sofia, just obviously a little bit closer to home. Yeah, as I said, I think the boxing midfield is so important for them um, because you have Adam O'Reilly and now Jamie Lennon who was brilliant the other night as well. He won the header from the corner to, to lead to the goal. And I think um, the two of them are absolutely spot on in terms of how they play with each other in the, just in front of the back three. Then you have obviously Chris Forrester and, and Billy King in front. And Billy King was really, really good. Just his end product is over the last couple of games hasn't been what he what, what we're used to with Billy. Um and then with the wing backs, Anto Breslin, Barry Cotter, you have pace there, you have energy, you have fitness, stamina, you have all the ingredients necessary for those wing back positions to push up when needed to. But then when you have players that are that are coming at you, the likes of Denoyer, who um who is electric, you need people to to go with him all the way, and, and Cotter can do that. And then you have the experience of Owen Doyle up front. So I think you Tim Clancy has the ingredients. And the correct ingredients to get a positive result on Thursday. I'm not saying that they're going to win the game, but in the sense that if they can, and I think it'd be the wrong tactics if they're just holding out for a draw. Um, but play like they did in CSK Sofia, probably have to add a little bit more to it. Um, and yeah, you could see a, a, one of the biggest upsets in, in Irish European history. Yeah, and the knock-on effect of uh, the obviously their fixture schedule, of course, was that the Shelburne game, as Jim said, was postponed. Originally supposed to take place on Friday, was then supposed to take place on Sunday, but of course, uh, Pats were in Bulgaria at the time, and um, just with the issues with their charter flight and just their statement first, David, um, or the Shelburne statement that is, we know that the FAI will now review of all the facts in front of them and determine next steps, and that they will contact us accordingly to discuss further. We trust this review will recognise that rescheduling would. Cause a, cause a further fixture backlog for Shelburne FC. As it stands, we have just had two home games in three months. Equally, it is incredibly unfair on our supporters, volunteers and the Gardaí to have had Sunday's game called off at short notice, especially considering that this fixture had previously been rescheduled from Friday. We share our supporters' frustration at the inconvenience this has caused everyone at the club. Obviously, David, um, not too happy from the Shell's point of view. Yeah, no, of course, understandable considering the game had to be rearranged in the first place to, to accommodate it. And then obviously the nature of the fact that it happened. Like, see, it's a bit of a strange on this because like Pats, even in the fourth place, Pats get like, without getting t- t- in bogged down by the details, when you kind of have to just to explain the situation in terms of even getting out there. Like Pats up until the day before they left hadn't got a charter arranged. So just to get like just there's a, a sense here that like you know everything was smooth sailing even getting out there and then like, getting back was almost an afterthought like obviously by rules at this stage of the competition you have to go by charter you can't go say by a schedule there and flight and all the rest of it like the day before Pat's left they were still arranging getting a flight out there and they knew it was an issue like they could only arrange that that one way charter flight 
and even speaking to people who work in that industry because again everything needs context if you're dealing with it from the point of view of, well why did this happen like literally organizing aircraft and organizing staff to actually legally fulfill a flight is actually very difficult at the moment you know and i know there was some suggestion that pats wanted to try and even get a bigger one a bigger a bigger plane so they could maybe get fans on it and then be able to get back but then even that wasn't feasible and then just the nature of the fact that once they got out there, the company who, who they'd been dealing with for the last while were then working like mad to try and even get them back straight away all after the game and do it. And it just proved impossible even just sourcing that aircraft and sourcing staff to to um to kind of well work on it. And then the issue, the issue I would say will be is that this, whether or not this was made clear even to the league or to Shelburne before they left, like I think that's that. That's maybe what could be an issue here as well. If 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 Pats weren't flagging some of the issues that they were having to the FAO, even in terms of getting out there beforehand, and it was only afterwards that it was brought to light just what what they were dealing with. Well, then that's an issue. Do you know what I mean? And but then I also go back to it, and my own point would be on this, and this goes for say Sligo when you see what happened in the last round with the FA Cup, FAO Cup games, and also for when you want the league to progress. Like the league is is very condensed as it is, and always been obviously extended and all the rest. But even with this year, we say with the under twenty one windows where games aren't happening there, just to allow say because of the, the change in nature of squads and where a lot of times games will be postponed when there's internationals on. But like surely, and listen, it's 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 hard now to talk about it because it should it should have been done beforehand. But going forward, there should just be something put in place for. European for your around European dates for League of Ireland clubs just to provide some kind of help for them. Like it's ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous that Pats would have even been expected to play that game in between um in the first place. Like if you want your clubs to progress and you want them to stand any chance, making them play a game in between such an in this leg is is incredible. And the fact that they won, and that's not even just playing saying because Pats have obviously ha- had one as well. This goes for, say, Sean McRover's two, and it goes for, also for, for, for Sligo. Like, you need to be, if you're making the season, if you're, the season isn't going to be full length almost when you think about it compared to others, how it is condensed. You go back to some of the days, and it hasn't been as bad this year, but go back to a couple of the seasons where it was so top-heavy, where you're playing, like, a ma- massive amount of games at the top end of a season before a mid-season break, and then everything is spread out, and then it has to finish because, you know, teams aren't, the clubs aren't paying full 52 week contracts. That's like that's another another issue here. And all it you can't talk about something in isolation. You have to talk about well, where is the league as a whole? And this is just another factor. Like it's a great problem to be having because it shows that what the League of Order clubs can be capable of and you look at some of the results that that they've had. But it's just when something like this then does happen, it almost makes it out as if, well. It's Mickey Mouse stuff again. And that's how it does seem. Let's be honest, it does seem that way. And it's you can't help but feel, obviously, an, a huge element of frustration for, for Shelbourne in terms of the amount of games they've played over the last little while. He, I think it was a two game. It's a two home, two yeah. two home, home games. games in three months, yeah. yeah. Like, and for also, when you think about it, like think about the revenue that they've lost out on. Do you know what I mean? That's so important for cash flow and all the rest of it. But I just think if the allowances that have been made, and this goes back and it like, it has to be a part of the broader discussion. Like it goes back to what's going on at the moment with the PFA, with the PFAI, and basic contracts. You know, and make, making sure that players in the leagues are actually min, getting paid minimum wage. Like this is still an issue that's yeah. going on 
in 2022 in the League of Ireland. And it's it's not a case of, oh, well, yeah, throwing this kind of stuff out there to mask what's happened in this instance. It's it's a whole round package that you have to deal with with the league and it has to be it has to be rectified if it's moving forward. Because let's be honest, with the way the Conference League is now and the way it is with maybe the League of Ireland in terms of the stage it's at, you would hope that getting through a couple of rounds at least would become a bit more than all, especially with the, the the various competitions that are various, obviously, Champions League, Europa League and, and, and the Conference League. You would like to think that it's going to become an issue down the line. So something needs to be learned from this that's mm. the phrase, the phrase in rugby, isn't it? Learnings and work and all yeah. the rest of it. So, but no, but genuinely, it does just in, in terms of making sure something like this in the future isn't seen where I don't know how you would do it. But sorry, David, is it is it should they just make a clear diktat and say, right, if Pats have got to this stage that their game against Shelburne doesn't happen, that that, that the game will be put back. See, I, I personally would say, like, surely I don't know how it, how it would be done with licensing and the fixtures mm. and stuff, but yeah, like, surely if like clubs get to a certain stage in Europe or in around it they can be free weeks for those clubs and then but then the issue with that then again James is the fact yeah. that, is that some clubs don't even want to play players in pre-season some players you know what I mean some, like, some clubs and I'm not saying Shelburne are one of them but some clubs want the season as short as possible exactly. and they want, they want to cram in as many games crammed in as possible but if you're going to have a league that's actually respected and try and can try and is looked upon as professional. When let's be honest, the whole league isn't professional. It's not like you've got top end of it, middle end of it, that maybe is, but like that that can't be yeah. can't be the case. And you've still got like as I said, and I'm sure Connell will have a maybe a greater understanding of this as well. When you've still got the PFEI fighting for basic standards that have been going on for the last decades, then that's mm. part of the issue. It really is. And you can't again I'm saying that you can't have one topic without bringing up all the rest of it because it all plays into the one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna see how that fixture backlog it's, it's assuming St. Pat's get through now again they've got a tough second leg to play in the Europa Conference League but if they do get to the playoff of course it'll be Bronby of Denmark or FC Basel of Switzerland two pretty uh, big clubs on the European scene meanwhile just very quickly on Sligo Rovers uh, they off the back of a uh, you know two Great legs against uh, Motherwell in the third, in the uh, in the second round. Uh, ended up playing Viking of Norway, lost five one um, away from home. Zlatko Tripic and Samuel Fridjonsson scoring the two early goals, and then David Cawley laid on uh, with a consolation. But uh, Conan, just on this one, I know you'd uh, I think you'd mentioned Zlatko Tripic as a player to watch out for from a uh, for a, from a Sligo point of view. But obviously, as a when we look at it, obviously the result is a blow and they are definitely going to be going out. But at the same time, there has been some progression. The fact they got as far as they did and when the dust settles after a few weeks, they'll be, I suppose, they'll be able to look back at this uh, European journey with a bit of satisfaction. Yeah, look, Tripic is, is their best player. He was, he was magnificent on the night of goal and I think he got three assists as well. Um, so he's the, he's their, he was their danger man and I'm sure John Russell was was wasn't too happy with conceding two early goals in, in those eight in those eight minutes. Um, but they are, they're the only European team that are that, apart from Sligo, obviously that, that have played. Scoopy um, were had a game had their game postponed. It was the opening day of the, the North Macedonian League this this weekend, and they had their game postponed along with CSK Sofia as well. So I think Viking are kind of conf- quietly confident that they're going to get through this uh, through this tie in the showgrounds and. Um, they only made they made, they made four changes from the team that 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 defeated Sligo, um, and they drew two all with Sandefjord having come in two 0 down, um, in the second half. And Maya Traore, who who scored in in 
in Stavanger on, on Thursday night. He he scored again. He came off the be- he came off the bench in 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 uh, at home last Thursday. So I think I reckon he's going to start. Um, but yeah, look, Sligo got a magnificent victory yesterday. I think it's they, they have to concentrate now on getting back into Europe. I think that's the most important thing now for John Russell going forward. Is that yes, it's probably going to be too much of a, a task against a, a team of Viking to to score four goals, albeit they did they did in 2014 beat a Lithuanian side four 0 in the showgrounds. But I still think, obviously, with the this, the quality within the the Viking dressing room and, and squad, that even if they manage to get a, a positive result in the showgrounds, um, that they're, they'll be doing really, really well. So their focus and attention will be turning to domestic matters from here on in. Obviously, being knocked out of the FAI Cup hasn't helped. Um, and yeah, they're, they, they'll be striving to get into that uh, European spot so that so the, the journey continues next year. Yeah, for Shamrock Rovers, anyway, the journey, regardless of what happens in this tie in the Europa League against Scoopy, that will continue. Obviously, they have the fallback of the Conference League, but they might not need it at all because, uh, of course, they won 3-1 at Tala in the first leg against Scoopy in the third qualifying round. So one foot in the playoff round, Graham Burke with a penalty on 13 minutes, then Dylan Watts doubled it. And then Kevin, for uh, which is not spelled Kevin, in, as we would understand it, of Scoopy pulling one back just as Scoopy started, were sort of getting control of the game and then at the very end Conan I mean Gary O'Neill's goal um, well taken like he had a he had another long range shot earlier but this one was just beautifully taken and really kind of a, a great moment not just in terms of how it was finished but also just that in a way it, it almost sets up a uh, you know that second leg where they do have that extra cushion yeah absolutely and I love the commentary as well of, of the goal of Bell it was the, the, the two lads were did a, did a great job but the ball the, the, the corner coming in anyway and it comes to Sean Hoard and knowing Sean he he loves getting on the score sheet and it was just expect him to pull the trigger but even this he, he pulled the ball he did a little drag back with his foot and had a, played a wonderful ball to, to Gary O'Neill who was able just to cushion it and, and put it into the top corner and the scenes even as a a notorious Pats fan. It was um hard to kind of not smile and and uh, give a give a little fist pump when when they did put it in because it's great. It's it's great for Irish football. It's great for Shamrock Rovers to to put in a performance like that. And obviously with the Ludogorets game conceding that third goal in the last the last minute over in Bulgaria to to do it themselves against Scoopy after their their mad statement that they put out um, on the, the eve before the game as well. But look, I I, I do think that the job isn't done. Um, I, I, as you said, Kevin is a, is a very, very good goal scorer. He's a creative midfielder as well. Um, Sunday at a Tunji as well, 20 goals last season for, for Scoopy. And um, he'll be, he'll be a danger man back at, back on home soil. And even, even Vladika Berdorovsky, he was. Uh, he only came on at half time. I think he he's he's going to start. He's numerous international caps, over two hundred and fifty games in in uh, league games over the course of his career. He did well when he came on. So I consider. I, I think he'll start too. But um, I think like like St. Pat's. I think Shamrock Rovers. They they shouldn't be going out trying to hold on to what they have. Their their squad is well capable of getting a very positive result, even a win against against Scoopy over in North Macedonia. Um, Graham Burke is this is the level that he should be playing at. Absolutely fantastic player. Gaffney has been has been brilliant. But Dylan Watts, I think, as I said, as I mentioned before, Raph, I think he, these European games really suit him and his style of play. And again, another wonderful performance from him and Gary O'Neill in midfield. And um, yeah, I just I'm very optimistic about about Shamrock Rovers' progression now and, and uh, this week. 
Yeah, another shout out as well. I think uh, Chris McCann, of course, as well, had a brilliant game um, in midfield there. Now, he did pick up uh, an injury and had to come off. I think also Graham Burke had a muscular one. And I think his uh, Burke's was a little less uh, serious mm-hmm. from what Stephen Bradley said earlier. But McCann, just in these type of European games with his experience, it's invaluable. And it does show because once he went off, then uh, Scoopy seemed to get a bit of a stranglehold of the game and you were wondering what direction it was going to go obviously until that goal at the end or the sending off and then obviously O'Neill's goal at the end Yeah, like Chris McCann is, is a fabulous footballer um, and it's the I suppose if you're ever going to see him you'll only see the um, how good he actually is when he does when you don't have the ball so even so let's take for example if you're watching it on TV you won't see how good a job Chris McCann is doing. You'll only get, you'll only get to see that live and, and you're looking at him directly because what he does for the Shamrock Rovers team in terms of his movement, in terms of dictating play, in terms of tracking runners and, and, and communication, it's so key to that side. Now, they don't lack experience in that area. Obviously, Gary O'Neill and Dylan Motts, they played against F91 Doodle Lounge seven years ago in, in the Europa League for UCD. So, they do, they, these lads, that, that midfield trio have, have great experience at, at this level. But with Chris, it's just that, I, I'm not going to say the age profile of him compared to the other two, but he's played a lot more games, um, championship level, with Burnley Premier League level. Um, and he's a, he's a wonderful footballer. But as I said, if you're looking at him on telly, you don't get to see the real Chris McCann. You can only see him when you're, when you're watching him live. And um, that that's where you really see the quality of his play. And yeah. You, and you know what? On, like on that way with Chris McCann, if you, if it's one of them where we always get the sense with him. It's one of those great what if kind of stories because if you go back to say around 0809, he was part of the Burnley team under Ron Coyle, like a promoter to the Premier League. It's the team that was doing really well and started the Premier League. And in the first month, did his cruise ship when Burnley got up and stayed up. He had a great season in, in that first year, but he was like their main man. And if you think back to that time around then, obviously Trapattoni was the manager of Ireland. He's just coming in. Like you've got Chris McCann, who was just a left-footed player. Young was getting around. Like he just had so much going for him. And then he had a couple of really bad injuries that just knocked him back. And then he obviously still went on and had a, a great career at, at championship level. But it is one of those. I kind of look back thinking it could have. You never know what could have happened if that injury hadn't happened. Because even back then, and it's amazing what can happen in the space of ten years. But even back then, one of those injuries was, was a lot more career threatening than it even would be now. Obviously, it still is now with you have to with the recovery and all. But like Colin is right when you see him play, like like the age profile. I think he was only short, only shorter Colin than now, lad. But um, <laughs> compared to the rest, but he, he just is. He's just a class act, and when you see him play, it's just especially for midfielders, like it's just brilliant to watch him play. Like. Yeah, so Shamrock Rovers one foot in the UEFA Conference League group stages uh, should they go through, obviously, but also they have the the carrot also within the Europa League itself of getting to the playoff round if they do finish the job off. Karabag of Azerbaijan or Fernchevaros of Hungary waiting in the next round. And uh, then domestically, there obviously were games. There was the uh, Shelburne Pats game, as we said, which was called off, but um, at the top, near the top end anyway, Dundalk and Derry City drew 1-1. Patrick Holman with a late equaliser after James Akintunde had uh, given Derry an early lead. Then Finn Harps beating Drodi United 3-0, Mihailovic, and then McWoods uh, with a brace later on. So that's uh, kind of crucial down the bottom end ahead of a big game between UCD and Harps this weekend. And then Sligo Rovers 
after that first leg in Europe, coming back home, and then with Max Mata scoring the brace, beating Bohemians 2-1. So very briefly on this, Conan, because uh, I know you have to shoot off fairly quickly, but uh, at the top end anyway, it's a result that Shamrock Rovers, you know, busy with uh, trying to fight the good versus evil thing over in North Macedonia <laughs> and, being on, and being on the evil side after <laughs> what Chukia said. They will be, they'll be delighted by uh, the results between Dundalk and Derry City there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, seeing Pat, Pat Huben do, do what he does best, I'd say there was a, a, a big cheer around uh, some houses around Tala. Um, and Ring's End, if you want to go down that road. But um, yeah, it was it was absolute textbook from him. Um, really poor defending from Derry City and, and Mark Connolly in particular. He just dropped too deep, dropped it inside his own six-yard box from a left, left from Stephen Bradley's cross. And Playing with Stephen Bradley, you'd know that he's left-footed, so you'd, you'd expect him to step up. But he didn't. He stepped back and allowed Pahuban coming across him. But what a finish. What a goal. Um, ninth of the season. He's, he, he's still the best centre-forward in the league, in my opinion. Just He's such an all-rounder. Um, his strength, his hold-up play, he can drop in into the 10, bring others into play. Um, and he just scores goals. Like I think this is going to be his fifth season or over. He hits double figures. Now, when as a striker, you should be doing that. But he's he suffered some injuries over the last number of years as well. So, so to still hit double figures every season is, is pretty impressive. Um, and yeah, with with Finn Harps, it was a great win for them. It takes them back off the bottom of the table after UCD climbing above them last week. It's the first win in 12. Absolutely crucial. The first time they scored three goals at home. First time a player has scored a brace for them this season. So hmm. all good for... All good for Finn Harps um, this season, uh, this weekend going into the going into the game against, uh, as you say, UCD next week. That's going to be massive. Really looking forward to that one. And then with Sligo, I think it was a, a tentative affair. I would have pref- I would have liked Bohemians to get to, to get started on the front foot, knowing that Sligo had a had a had a bit of an excursion and a bit of a trip and a bit of a game um, on Thursday against against Viking, and they didn't. They kind of just kind of a tentative affair early on and obviously they got the goal in the second half through John O'Sullivan but I think the substitutions that that John Russell made at half time were absolutely key he um he brought on obviously Max Maida who made a huge difference and, and, and their new sign Robert Burton from from Dynamo Zagreb on, on loan um but with Max Maida he went into the into the centre forward position and they dropped Aiden Keane into into the 10 which is something that I probably would have wouldn't suspected from Aiden Keane I would have always said him he's a number nine he'll Fox in the box score goals, but he was really, really good. And um, Max made it took his goals really, really well, and um, a, a fully deserved victory, I would have said. But with, again, with Bohemians, I think it's ten out of twenty-four games this season that they've taken the lead. Mm. They've taken the lead in that they've dropped points, and it's just unacceptable. Now, I think with the players that they brought in, this might be just a once-off um, because these type of events were happening earlier on the season. Uh, Keith Long has brought in some really, really good players, and. Um, I think hopefully for, for from a Bose point of view, you think it's going to be a once off because Max Maida did change the game when he came on. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd still need to see more from Bohemians. They've their the last few wins have been teams around the bottom of the league and they're struggling with teams above them. Yeah, and just very, very briefly, um, obviously in the first division, then Galway drawn 2 2 at Wexford, Cork City uh, beaten mm-hmm. at Lone 6 1. It looks like, again, like the gap in the table on paper doesn't look massive, but obviously it's only, there's a couple of points, but obviously Cork City have having the game in hand. It looks like they just have that little bit of a grip on it. Yeah, it, it looks like that. And Wexford <laughs> causing more upsets now with, the, with their play. They love going out to out to the west of Ireland anyway um, but yeah Connor Barry against his old club with two goals the first one was absolutely fantastic great finish ca- catching the keeper early um, and off guard but as you say Cork um, 
three points clear, game in hand, scoring goals for fun. Barry Coffey with a, with a hat trick. Um, Josh Onham as well. He get the second goal in 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 his, in, in consecutive games. Um, and Rory Keaton as well off the mark. So mm-hmm. yeah, very very confident that that Cork will do the job now. Um, but Wexford will be or Galway will be kicking themselves that they that they didn't uh, that they didn't take the three points against Wexford. Wexford, but they will be happy with Rob Manley scoring goals. They needed himself and Stephen Walsh is are, are doing particularly well and Waterford under coattails, but a little bit further afield from from the from the top two. Very good. Anyway, Conan, we'll, we'll let you go. Obviously, your journey now isn't going to be as arduous as Pat's uh, journey back from Bulgaria. <laughs> we'll, we'll, let you, we'll let you get yeah. off in time anyway. So, look, thanks, Mill, for uh, for coming on this week. Thank you. All right, so uh, that was Conan Byrne. Also, Jim McMahon had to pop off there as well. But uh, that leaves myself and David Snaid before uh, Miguel Delaney uh, logs on. Um, but one thing we didn't talk about in terms of Bohemians was their new signing, Jonathan Afalabi, who has uh, arrived um, kind of a circuitous route. Obviously, there was a point where he was uh, signed up by Celtic and he's had a bit of an interesting career since he left uh, left our shores, David. Yeah, this has been, a, this was when when Bowles, when Bowles sent the email out announcing this sign and it was one of those where you're like, oh, this is interesting. This is, uh, this could be a bit different. I know Colin was talking there about the fact that the points that they've dropped from being in um, strong positions and, and 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 winning and not being able to hold on to leads, I think getting a sign like this obviously it's not going to shore up a defence or a midfield, but it's going to fill a gap in terms of not so much fill a gap, but you've lost promise on my share, so you needed to replace a player like Calibre. And yeah, like Afalabi, you go back to the underage one was at nineteens where he was in the tor- team of the tournament and for Ireland and he was really highly highly regarded and just. The Celtic move was never really, never seemed to really work for me. He had a couple of loans in Scotland. Like he was training with Sean McGrover. Sean McGrover's had been really keen over the last little while to try and bring him in. And I think there was some issue where maybe his agent didn't maybe quite want the move to come back to Ireland. He wanted to keep him in the kind of system almost around in uh, in Britain. But yeah, like Keith Long goes as is tend to be, as tends to be the case. Sometimes they can just pull off a deal that you have you haven't seen coming. And, this could be a good one for, for him for the rest of the season. Now, it can be can be tricky as well because he's coming in midway through a season and he's going to have to hit the ground running. But he is a player where if things can click for him, he's going to excite that and he's going to score goals. And he, like we spoke, it's a common team, but we spoke about this with, with other lads. It's one of those players where, especially at his age and the position he's in, about learning the game, getting that sense of a rhythm in your game and just feeling confident in yourself and getting those minutes. And Bowles will definitely give him that. And if he can deliver goals, all the better for it. But it's just going to, it could be a very uh, interesting subplot for Bowles for the, for the rest of the season if they are going to try and kick on and, and finish the season strongly and possibly have a cup run because you get the sense now that's something that's going to really need to say, help save their season considering how it's gone is to, is to maybe deliver a bit of silverware. Yeah, they have Dundalk on Friday and then the other fixture uh, at the same time, 7.45 kickoff, draw the United against Shelburne and also UCD and Finn Harps, as I said. And then also, big. well, this would have been bigger maybe if Derry City hadn't had that fall off in uh, in the middle of the in the middle of the season. But Derry City against Shamrock Rovers. So Rovers obviously will be somewhat distracted by what they're, the second leg in Europe. So it's an opportunity for Derry City. But again, as we said, you know, uh, Shamrock Rovers looking at that result midweek or on, I'm oh, sorry, at the, at the weekend between uh, Dundalk and Derry City. I mean, they have they have a bit of a cushion. Well, that, that's it. Like the way to see, as you, you mentioned it yourself, Raph, like the way the season's kind of panned out, you are hoping that Derry would may, be able to maintain 
would have been very difficult for them to maintain that early form where they weren't unbeaten, but when they were top, but the manner of the fall off and wasn't at that point where they think it was like seven, eight games where they didn't win. And yeah, they just like, I think in fairness, like you remember speaking, I remember speaking to Rory Higgins after, uh, after a match at Talca Park, um, which probably was a few months ago now, which is probably the last time Shell's played at, played at home. But like, um, and even Rory Higgins, he was kind of saying, listen, he knew it was going to be bumps in the road, but I don't think he was quite expecting the nature of how it, how it has gone. Um, for his for his team, maybe again handy little reminder. You know, obviously you need to bring in Mark Connolly as well, considering they lost Hall. But yeah, like Rovers, like Stephen Kenny made, mentioned this point again. Going back to but Stephen Kenny made a point last week. Just doesn't seem as if there's a real strong challenger to Rovers at the moment. And we give them something to think about in the, in that in the league. Um, and they can go. And we're talking about fixtures and all the rest of it as well and the fact that obviously Derry made sure this fixture still went ahead on the day it was scheduled to go on um, but yeah like the thing is like, you just expect with Rovers like the squad they have the experience that they have and the depth that's there they could go there and still get a result like there's still a sense of a greater amount of pressure on Derry to go and deliver because they need to they need to especially in front of those fans and getting a sense of momentum that they just haven't, other than that, those early parts of the season, it's just kind of flatlined a little bit. And it's kind of a bit of a story of the season domestically, really. Like you're kind of looking at it thinking, you know, it just seems as if Rovers are not so much. I don't think, I think sleepwalking to the title is, is a bit unfair, but I just think Rovers are going to be able to almost play within themselves and, and ease themselves to, a, to another title, which just gives you a bit of an indication of how far ahead they are. Of, uh, of the rest of the challenge, the challengers, you know. Yeah, which makes obviously the cup, as I think, uh, as we said about Bohemians, it makes the cups or as huge for the likes of themselves. Well, Derry, Bowes, um, Dundalk as well. I mean, just to have that extra thing to shout about in a way that maybe obviously over on the other side of the water, an FA Cup doesn't really add any. Liverpool were yeah. almost disappointed to win one. Yeah, like it's one of them where. <laughs> Yeah, like it, I don't know. I think the cup still has a bit of a luster here. I, I do think in terms of like the day the day that's in it and all the rest of it and what goes around it. And but there is still that sense, especially for even for a club like Rovers now. And like it's almost like, for them the cup should be part of the season. Do you know what I mean? Rather than the be all and end all. But for like say the likes of a Dundalk or a Derry at the stage there that under say Stevie O'Donnell or Rory Higgins, it the cup can be a bit of a platform, a bit of a catalyst for something else. But the fact that Derry had already shown what they could be capable of consistently over a few months, that's what they need to get back to. And that's going to be a bigger thing for them for the rest of the season, as well as obviously winning a cup if they can show that they can re get back on the horse after being just so poor for the last couple of months. That'll be a big thing going into next season. But it's just disappointing that we're on the 8th of August and we're already talking about what they should be doing to try and make a challenge for next season, you know? Yeah, and also in the women's FAI Cup, Bohemians beat uh, Sligo 3-1. So that Sligo had obviously had a great weekend last weekend by uh, by uh, shocking mm-hmm. Shelburne. And uh, Shells, though, uh, got back to winning ways, beating P-Mount, their great rivals, 3-2 to make the semi-finals. Gemma Quinton with the late winner. And then Wexford beat DLR Waves 3-1. And Athlone, who were having a brilliant season, beat Cork 2-0. And I think uh, this is a cue also for Miguel Delaney, who has joined us. Uh, we were just talking about FA Cups there on a weekend where the Premier League has made its uh, <laughs> its grand return. So on the welcome mention, but how are you, Miguel? Uh, good, good. I was at Manchester City yesterday. Well, at West Ham, who were playing Manchester City, uh, in what I felt like an ominous exhibition for the rest of the season. In just a felt like... 
I, I must say, having, having seen the Liverpool-Fulham game the, the previous day, which was really entertaining, trying to Fulham put it up to Liverpool, kind of a real bite about it. This was so dull. I mean, because the whole match just felt like basically City comfortably waiting until they had an opening and just taking it. Now, there's a few murmurs that all is not well between Moyes and the West Ham squad. So that could be part of it. But even then, like, it was just... It, 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 it essentially, as soon as City decided to raise it, they scored. It was mm-hmm. only twice. It was even the, the first... Just before the first goal, there was one move which came from a lovely Haaland uh, touch. Uh, De Bruyne had a goal ruled out for, for offside. Then the second one was where Haaland finally makes one run like that. He's released. West Ham come cope penalty, smashes it into the corner. So, like, well, you might usually say a penalty is a cheap goal to get his first. It came from his run and the way he took the penalty as well. And then the second goal was just... Uh, well, the second goal, actually, in, in some ways, it's a classic Callum goal. But it looks like it's more worrying for everyone else, just in the sense that that's actually something City have missed for the last few years. And that so much of football has been this kind of, you know, this kind of flowing collective, and so, much, so much possession and passes until they get into a position, position where someone cuts it back to the edge of the box um, and, you know, and, and, and another player is arriving to score. Whereas with this, now if, we, if you step out against City rather than kind of, you know, sit back and try and stop them passing through you, but if you step out, how many times are we going to see this happen this season? It's a bit like kind of Gerard and Torres or Gerard knowing where it's going to be De Bruyne just slipping the ball through to Haaland. And that's it. I'm like, I do worry that's going to be the case for the start of the season. And by, by the time the World Cup comes around, even though it could disrupt it, um, they could be well away. Yeah, and even, I mean, seeing Haaland in the flesh within this system, Miguel, I mean, there were, even on TV, I think there was a moment where before Gundogan played that ball for the that led to the penalty, I think there was one earlier where Haaland looked a little bit frustrated that the ball wasn't released as quickly by Gundogan before. So there are still little teething problems within the system, but once that starts to click, that is going to be quite scary for everybody else. Well, there is something there in the sense that even after the game, uh Guardiola wasn't completely willing to indulge the kind of all the gushing praise for Haaland because he was talking about, oh, I want to improve him as a player. Uh, obviously, loads of managers do that. You know, you want to, if you want to go as far back as kind of Ferguson with Andy Cole, that we turned him into something other than a goal scorer. And from what you hear from City's training ground is that Guardiola wants Haaland to press much more, uh, so to change his game a little bit. And apparently, as long as, well, while Guardiola calls all the players by their first name, he calls Haaland by his surname all the time, which is making people laugh in the city training ground. It's kind of like his teacher-pupil relationship. But yeah, but w- w- once that happens, I mean, this is the other side as well. Even, even if Haaland does have teething problems, which could be possible for the next few months, uh, although it doesn't look like the case, what happens then? Then he's got five weeks off to basically work on his game and hone it during a World Cup. Um, so... <laughs> I'm not sure how much I'm going to sell in this mm. Premier League title you're, you're, you're really into us by this season Miguel <laughs> but it, like I mean it's just the point Miguel is making there David I mean if he's if that's what teething problems look like um, no. <laughs> I don't know what the full-blown like toddler slash uh, you know childhood to adult um, sort of uh, trajectory looks like for Holland then I know even like the, even the sense that you might even like Haaland might actually make Kevin De Bruyne look like an even better player with the amount of goals he could be getting on the back of it's 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 incredible to think about it. Now listen, it's one of them where like let's be honest, like some people were writing almost writing Haaland off because he had a bad charity shield or community yeah. shield or talking about even tying in with some of the nonsense on social media about Darwin Nunes when he missed a couple of chances in training. 
and he's getting written off as a some sort of fraud, just the nature of how football is, especially on social media. But what was it? What, what, and I'll be honest, like I'd be one of them where I was actually excited to see how he played because other than a couple of Champions League games, I haven't really seen Erling Haaland play. You know, you see, got you see some of the finishes and you see how he is, but like. The goal for the penalty, and like what Miguel said, like how he won that penalty, like just the speed of thought in terms of seeing where the yeah. ball is and then reacting and then saying, well, this is the run I have to make. Like, it's just so sharp. And obviously the, the run itself, the speed he has, but it's a speed of thought that is just on a different level, it seems. And even the fact that like he's running in behind, but it's not as if even for the goal, that first goal, the penalty that he has like 30 yards to run into, which he kind of did for the second, and then it can adjust his body. Like he's running into a very short space and still has the... Just the, the awareness, I suppose. He knew what was coming with the goalkeeper. It was very clever. Like he, he well, it was a clearly a penalty. I suppose it wasn't, it wasn't as if it was one where he where he won it, but it was just the speed of thought. And I think that's why, in terms of team problems, maybe there'll be issues. But it's if he was just relying purely on pace and power and being a bit of a bully, you would say, you know what? Maybe he won't hit the ground running. But when you see how clever he actually seems to be with how he uses his power and his strength, that it's not as if he. The power and strength is what he solely relies on, even though it's 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 so clear in the pace. It's I think it's just something with like the cleverness. Even the second goal, he had so much space to run into. Like he times that, his, that, he timed his run perfectly. That, that's the thing. I mean, because because of his size, you're almost kind of fooled and thinking that he's just a, he's a bruiser. He's all about physique. Whereas actually, what stands out about his game more than anyone, more than anything, is his movements, as you say. Yeah. And even I, I love the way he took that second goal, which is basically I mean. He didn't even take a touch to set him. He actually set himself with his own movement that kind of went around the ball and then just the, the easy finish. It was so good, wasn't it? Like, but and it's one of them where I think now by rights, like I think Cavani had the, the mantle of you had to talk about his movement every time you spoke about him. But that's yeah. now where, where where it'll be at with with Haaland, you know. It's yeah. it is, and they gave him not that you not that you despair for what could happen in terms of like it's almost as if you see what happened in that and Miguel mentioned it like the full and Liverpool game that how entertaining it was. I don't think a City full game would be as entertaining because I think City just have something else about them where they can just grind teams a lot more than say a Liverpool. I think that almost listen, it's the first it's the first weekend in the season and it's gonna be a mad season because the obviously just gonna be the break with the with the World Cup, but I think it, and maybe we'll touch on what's happened with West Ham. It just seems it does seem ominous, and maybe it could it, it, it could be that force weekend where everything seems great for some clubs and brutal yeah. for the rest. And the, the natural order would be obviously where players will come in and out of form. But the nature of what City squad yeah. is, they have such a good squad, they can deal with that. The, the one thing I would say in that is, I think you're absolutely right in the World Cup. This for all we have, we we naturally draw perceptions from the first weekend just because we've had a two months of football. No, 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 no. Two months without football in England again. Two months without oh, sorry, football in England. England. Well, and actually, even, even, even there... And I've even then, there's been the Euros. Yeah, I've had the Women's Euros, so I've actually, I've been, I've been, I've been you know, a disgrace for me. And I went to games. But sorry, two months without the Premier League, should I say, or two months without seeing the, the teams. Yeah. Um, but we're, I think it's probably underappreciated just how much of an effect it... Because we don't know what's, how this World Cup is going to uh, distort things. I think quite a lot. And even if you look at that, we just thinking about it yesterday... Like see, most of City's players, and above all De Bruyne at this age, now he's in his thirties, are probably going to be starters for their team for their team in the World Cup. A fair few of them would at least get to the quarterfinals. That's going to have a big. Whereas Liverpool, I think, only have two certain starters who are Van Dijk and Allison. Um, there are even Tiago because he had injury issues again this week. He um, 
He may not start for Spain. Um, Henderson may not start for England, which even if they're away for a long time, just obviously takes away from some of the intensity, means they're not, they're not quite as emotionally involved either. And that, that, I mean, even if City are what, 10 points clear by November, as an example, just because it's almost like one of those old Argentine, Argentine seasons, South American seasons, with a first half and a second half. Oh, the Apertura and the Clausura yeah. kind of thing, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It just it's so different in that, in that regard. Yeah, um, before, we, we will talk about the World Cup a little bit later on, because I don't know, I think, I, and I think you, you wrote a piece which was more about the, I suppose, is the Premier League too big to fail? So I wanted to kind of touch on that a little bit later on uh, and the World Cup, just where it's taking place and all that. It just kind of feels symbolic of where the game is at. But uh, Liverpool, though, as uh, has just been touched upon there, obviously Darwin Nunes um, getting a goal. Well, at least it looked like it was going to be given as an own goal. And so we saw the replay um, as they came back to draw 2-2 against Fulham and then setting up Mo Salah as well for the, uh, for the late equaliser. But... Something there was something off about the attack you were saying there before Nunez came in, Miguel. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose it's one of those situations it felt like when even though he's brought in Nunez for that sort of money, just because it's the first game, it's, it's amazing how often managers do this. It's almost like the first game they'll always stick to last season and introduce the new signing as a sub or whatever. Um, but it did feel like a mistake in this time, just because. I mean, Firmino as brilliant as he's been for Liverpool, and even even within this game, there was one or two nice touches. He's just not not the presence he was. It felt like he was kind of flitting in and out of the game. And then suddenly he brings on Darwin Nunez. And it's like the entire match isn't attracted towards Darwin. The, the amount of times the ball went to him, often had three Fulham defenders on him. And that, of course, actually gave so much more space for Salah. Um, Liverpool have Palace next week. So I think at home, Nunez will surely have to start. Then, of course, Manchester United after that away. Um, let's see how that goes. But... Um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have too many concerns, even though, you know, there's, there's obviously a bit of furore today about their, their, their midfield. Um, it, did, it did just look, it looked like it all fit much better once Nunes came on. Yeah, uh, but uh, the, the narrative has been sort of Nunes is there to replace Sadio Mane, but is it really more of a case that Luis Diaz, the signing in January, was sort of brought in as the, the longer-term replacement? Obviously, he shared the pitch with uh, Mane in big matches, including the Champions League final, and then Nunes is sort of more the long-term replacement for Firmino, even though their games are totally different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do, the, one thing I, the one thing I didn't notice in that regard was just it, it did feel like Liverpool made, it made much more sense to have to just pace either side of a straight number nine. Um, now, I suppose, that, again, that will mark a bit of a difference just because, the, I mean, the, the nature of the old forward line, and I, it, it is such a change. For me. Like, like that, can't, that can't be discounted either, just because, I mean, the last half decade has basically been dominated by th- that forward line. I know it started to be bro- broken up, as you said there, with the introduction of Luis Diaz, but, but there's a difference between one of them being, being in and out, out of the team and one of them leaving, as has happened now with Mane. And I think that does have a psychological impact, especially given how important Mane was, especially after, you know, from 2018 on, the kind of evolution in his own game. And it, it will now require an evolution adaptation about Liverpool. Um, and, and one thing about Diaz as well, I mean, he's so electric to watch, but there's still that slight sense he's a little bit, um, a little bit lacking in finished product almost or something, which could be seen actually for, for the first their first big chance of the game. Firmino put him through and he hit the post. And it, this isn't tonight that he's a brilliant, impactful player who, who's superb. But it, it, do, it does feel like he's not the finished article yet. 
is yeah. that what is that the, sorry is that even on that and is not is that the case that did maybe when they've actually bought and brought them in that they brought them in a bit early because I think yeah, other, yeah. other clubs were sniffing around maybe so I think obviously the obviously you have, as you say like he I think his qualities when he came in, in last January were exactly what Liverpool needed at that stage in the season in terms of just injecting something that was a bit lacking in terms of an intensity yeah. a bit more whatever and yeah but as you say like maybe but that will come you would imagine you know I think Klopp was kind of proven that hasn't he where he can kind of he's, he seems to be ideal him and the staff are kind of smooth and some of the rough edges but then keeping just that little bit that's needed a bit of bit yeah. of madness almost of, of keeping that quality of a player and not kind of I don't know not beating it that's just, yeah, he, not smoothing out all the edges in the game like it's, yeah. it, and it's why it's why he's different to Pep Guardiola in that way and, and, sorry but even with Mane like because you look at what Mane the amount of times where even Klopp would kind of talk about how he knew Mane could get wound up and yeah. he, did, he didn't want to take that out of his game because he knew how important it was he kind of knows exactly where where he wants the line to be for each of his players and I was even just thinking like the different, the different, the different types of players they have as well. Like, say, I was, I was laughing to myself. I said, laughing to myself. That makes me seem like a bit of a weirdo, but like, kind of uh, the thought of saying Nunes and Jota even linking up, it could almost be like a Noel Quinn and Kevin Phillips type job if needs be in terms of just mixing up. It might not always have to be a tree. It might not always have to be that system. They actually have that capability now where they can change it slightly. And yeah, yeah, like, that's true. Yeah, like where you have a new a Jota playing off, and obviously he's injured at the moment, but like. I think that could be important as well for Liverpool, where it's not just everyone knows right. Well, if Salah's not playing, this is still going to be the system. I think they have a bit more of a capability now to actually mix it up a little bit, which could be important going forward. For yeah, to- to- totally, totally. And, and and on that again, I suppose it would just because to come back to the World Cup because we're going to have to. The other side, okay, fair enough. Haaland is off for five weeks, but so are Salah and um, and Diaz, and that's why Salah could be. Yeah. Would be in a really dangerous level after Qatar. Yeah. Uh, the other point we're going to talk about before we get to the World Cup: Manchester United, of course, losing uh, losing to Brighton two one, and uh, obviously Pascal Gross should be the headline act in terms of the fact that he did score both goals for Brighton. But everybody's talking about Manchester United, obviously, because it's a carryover of problems that existed prior to Eric Ten Hag and. You know, you look at the team sheet that's been named and you look at the base of midfield where there's been a lot of focus on trying to bring in Frankie de Jong. And I don't know if that's going to happen necessarily, but you see Fred and McTominay or McFred as they're generally known. And I, in terms of what Ten Hag wants to implement, Miguel, I mean, they've, they've a long road to go. There's just too many question marks there. There's obviously Cristiano Ronaldo, who you get a sense maybe the manager would, in his ideal system, would not have a player like that up front but again left him out at the starting lineup but it just there's so many question marks there I'm not sure what the template or what the idea is supposed to be I think I mean I would say Ten Hag himself knows what he wants as a manager as a coach he's tried to apply it the initial noises from United were quite good the players liked it but I, I, I do feel like this result and, and this, this is why it could be so damaging no matter what the manager's trying to do I did feel like this is ultimately tied to bigger issues rather than specifically Ten Hag which was and he, he referenced this himself which was as soon as they went behind, which can happen, it just felt like all of the problems of the last few years kind of caved in themselves. And it just took away all the, any positive momentum they had. Uh, it, it does remind that, I suppose, there are core issues with this club. Even with United, it's because, because there's so much... I mean, Brighton, Brighton were interesting opposition. And in I think they were like Mark Critchley, my colleague, the independent, did a good piece 
this morning on how they're kind of the anti-Manchester United and how everything everything at the club works to a specific ideal, even if you want to get into transfers, right, to the fact that they actually sell for huge money and still improve the squad. Um, whereas United just don't work to some ideal. Now, Ten Hag is supposed to be the first step in that to, to something bigger. Let's see if it actually happens. Um but but it's it's also why just there was such an element element of deflation about it because if it is the first step to start with that and suddenly if that set them back further, um, and it, it, it does just just show how so much of the club is is dysfunctional because I mean I mean for me I, I still I have to say I, I think United should have gone for Pochettino just because of the kind of psychological impact he can have on a club how he can lift it because he, he did it at Spurs. But that said, I did think Ten Hag was an immediate improvement on everything they've had for the last few years because he's he's a coach in an upward curve who's gonna at the forefront of the game like that. I mean, like Mourinho and Van Gaal were past it, Solskjaer and Moyes were never really had it. Whereas Ten Hag, he he I mean I and everything you heard from the training ground was that there was an improvement in terms of this is all actually one of the first times, other than Rangnick, who didn't have the kind of authority because he was short term, one of the first times this squad had kind of been trained in this sort of approach. It was having an effect, and then it just goes into that where it all just unravels through a few, a few kind of uh, one one goal goes against them, and then you you know problems start to appear everywhere. Although from really from the from the first moment of the game, it did feel symbolic. Like I'm not I'm not one of these that thinks it's necessarily a problem that Lissandro Martinez is five foot eight. I mean, everyone's pointed out now that Cannavaro was even shorter, but it still was conspicuous that first moment of the game, Brighton trying to launch one over his head. And but and even if that didn't really expose Martinez, they Brighton used it as a, as an opportunity just get at United and press, and that set the tone for the whole game. Yeah, and the wider issue as well when it comes to Manchester United is there's still a sense that there's that kind of cult of the manager in a sense that maybe doesn't exist as strongly at other clubs. And it's kind of looking at the transfer market and how they've dealt with it. Obviously, he's going back to what he knows, which is obviously understandable in terms of going for, as you said, Martinez and then players he's worked with at Ajax or within the Dutch system. But we look at all the managers they've had before. They have brought in, even going back to David Moyes, bringing in, you know, Marwan Fellaini. And it's maybe not part of the long-term plan of the club, but it is part of the long-term plan of the manager. And a lot of the planning seems to be based on who the manager is as opposed to where the club and the philosophy is supposed to go, as with Manchester City, where you would imagine there is some sort of succession planning when Pep Guardiola does eventually leave. I mean, if you, if you look at what City were, I mean, for five years... The club had been built up so that Guardiola was ready to walk into a perfect situation. Um, now that was obviously aided by the fact that they're owned by a state, had huge infrastructure even before um, even before financial fair play fair play came in. Uh, we, we United, I mean, and, and really, this is what United should be doing. They should be reshaping the entire club while making the, the right appointments to kind of to kind of placehold and keep them in the Champions League places while it happens. But it's still, it doesn't feel like this happened. And this is the, well, well, certain signings make sense in terms of what um, Ten Hag wants, obviously, even right down to De Jong and that saga. He, he, he specifically wants him because he thinks that De Jong gets his football so much that he'll accelerate um, the, the, un, the understanding of, um, of, of, of the team. But it still feels like it's just basically... Um, it, 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 it's going to what the manager wants rather than something that fits into an overall ideal the manager himself should fit in should fit into. And that that's fine if the manager works out. This is the thing that should be said. 
But if the manager doesn't work out, which isn't impossible, it's just because, I mean, because even, even, even Ten Hag has to adapt to a new situation here. He's gone from the Dutch league to one of the biggest clubs in the world. That, that, is, that is a jump. But if, and if the manager doesn't work out, then suddenly, and they've brought in loads of former Ajax or, or Eredivisie players, once again, it's basically a squad that's now made up of the ideas of five managers rather than four. Uh, and, and I suppose that that's the issue. But again, you can forgive it just because Ten Hag is coming into a little bit of a kind of a because the situation he's, he's coming into. But that, that should emphasise the importance of United getting their structure right. But again, that structure is dependent on what the Glazers are as owners. And they get into all the bigger issues of the club because, I mean, it is for all it's become comedy for so many people. I mean, it, it's not it's not good for football that any club can be taken over in the way Manchester United were, that can be used in the way Manchester United were. And that, like, this is this is one of the few clubs, actually, because the way football has gone, disparity, like the financial disparity, this is one of the few clubs that can actually properly compete with the state-owned clubs if they were if they were mm. run correctly. Uh, but they're not. Yeah, clearly. Um, we, we'll just touch on the World Cup because obviously it, it's come up. It's going to have a massive impact on, on the season, uh, whether it's in the Premier League, like Liga or wherever else. But it does feel in a way the World Cup itself is kind of symbolic of the wider problems of the game. We're still talking about state power, given where this World Cup is taking place this summer, but also the wider issues and question marks over sort of fixture conge- or, fi- or fixture congestion, you know, the calendar. Uh, and we're going to see that, I suppose, with uh, what's going to happen in Europe in terms of the future and the, this uh, sort of this court case that involves the European Super League but just where it's wedged um, this winter it just feels very symbolic Miguel. yeah yeah and I mean like and, and this is the thing I mean I wrote my own preview for the Independent the week uh, going into the week that you know it's its 30th anniversary we're at a point where the Premier League has never been bigger it's the biggest show in town but what actually happens then it's the, the one competition that can arguably claim to be bigger even, even though it doesn't actually generate as much money as the Premier League, uh, the World Cup, that distorts the whole thing, changes it, influences it. And that, that, because of that, we're going to see a lot of kind of, um, shall we say, convenient discussion. Because suddenly it suits them to talk about the effect of sports washing, guitar, and all, you know, all the, um, uh, how, how wrong it is the World Cup is being held here at this time, given what they want it for, given sports washing. But then, of course, like, the Premier League has been as complicit in the rise of sports. I mean, the, fir- the first major sports watching takeover, which was Manchester City, although a lot of people at this point would say uh, Chelsea 2003, given, given what happened there, given his, given Abramovich's connections to Putin. Um, but but, but th- that, that was all the start of it. That created this new world in football, showed the potential for states and, and the benefits to them in taking over football clubs. And, and it, that, that has been the story. So, like Manchester City... We, we we started off talking about how ominous the first game was. Well, again, if they if they win the title this this year, it's five and six and three in a row. And I know United did five and six under Ferguson, and he he did three in a row twice. And there and financial disparity was part of that, but particularly but the second time, but it still wasn't on the same scale. Like the, the numbers involved now are so much greater. The way the points returns are so much greater. The, the positions are so much more fixed and that it's like it, when, when Ferguson won his first three in a row in the third of those seasons, Ipswich finished fifth. Now that's just, <laughs> that's not happening. And again, people always point to Leicester in these arguments, but the reason why Leicester was a 4,000 to one miracle, why it was so hailed was because it was so impossible to repeat. So like, that's not an argument against this situation. It actually proves a point 
that you did something, something like that was was so miraculous. Yeah, and, um, and I guess that the uh, we're talking about Newcastle is possibly the only other club joining it, and there's a reason why they're the only club that are going to possibly join and mix with that top six, and because of the same issues you're talking about. Yeah, and, and they probably, I mean, just by sheer force and numbers, they probably will disrupt it at some points. Uh, it it does feel like they're like they're at the moment they're after James Madison. It does feel like that'll be kind of a little bit of a almost a touchstone moment because if Leicester do agree to sell him, then you you are talking about Newcastle just buying Leicester's place basically. There's leapfrogging them, becoming that team outside the big six, trying to trying to push their way in. Um, but there's an interesting dynamic there, of course, because Newcastle because of their owners. They haven't. Um, they've been fully conscious that anytime they go for a player, every selling club, particularly in Europe, just you know, bumps up the price by ten million, whatever. Which is why, and then Newcastle tried to not get into that, tried to kind of be resistant to it and show they won't pay it. Um, which is ironically meant they've kind of they've sort of underspent this year, and with some of that, of course, tied to financial fair play. But of course, the same ultimate owners are shelling out hundreds of millions more uh, on golf. Yeah. With the LRD golf tour. Yeah, and also their involvement in Formula One, as we've seen in the last couple of years as well. But the the other point, of course, with the growth and continued growth of the Premier League, and I don't know where this uh whether there is some bubble here that will be burst at some point, but you made a point in your piece that uh it's threatening to hollow out European football in the way European football hollowed out South America three decades ago, quickly absorbing everything of worth elsewhere. That is kind of a scary thought. I mean, we've seen how the leagues in Brazil and Argentina have been impacted by the you know the that route that the vast majority of any any players with any inkling of talent end up playing in Europe and at progressively younger and younger ages and if we're seeing the same thing happening on the continent even in you know if you're to go to clubs like and obviously there's more to it than just that but you know your style Bucharest who could go on and win a, a European Cup in the in the 1980s or even Dinamo Kiev who could maybe 25 years ago compete these are all falling by the wayside and it's basically the Premier League and even the likes of La Liga, lots of uh, lots of clubs below the big ones in La Liga and Serie A are sort of left by the wayside. Well, I mean, the whole, the Super League project is ultimately, it's primarily really based on the fact that the big European clubs feel left behind, that it's, this, this is their way to kind of compete again. Uh, and that shows, where, where, I mean, and it's, it's interesting actually as well because you you referenced it there, but at the moment there's this court case. Well, it's not even reached the court case yet. The latest has been it's to decide whether it will go to actual court. And basically, this this is the future of football, side of it. And the current case is that the, the Super League are trying to argue that UEFA have a monopoly, a business monopoly through their ability to create, or their, through their sole ability to create competitions in Europe. And obviously, what because what, what all these clubs want to do is just make up their own competitions and, and earn a fortune off it and make up things like the Super League. Now, of course, UEFA would argue, or their big defense in all this is that that monopoly is necessary because this isn't a normal business. This is the culture of Western European football. The sport isn't a business in that sense. Um, that's a fair argument. Uh, it's certainly the one UEFA should be putting. Uh, it could well be powerful in court, but it depends on whether the court takes a, a purely contractual or technical view of this and looks at it in terms of purely business or takes an ideological political view which is accepting the position of sport but the current attack line from or one of the arguments made by the European Super League is that how can UEFA say that they are actually defending that this is necessary for the culture of sport where they've overseen a culture where 
90% of football's wealth is in a very few small pockets of Europe. I mean, that, and, and, and they're actually, obviously, I'm not, I don't think the Super League project is right. I don't think, the, particularly with the way it was announced last April. But there is actually merit to that argument that how can, how can the culture of European football be where just all the money is funneled into one and it, it's going to, it becomes self-perpetuating. Um, and and that, that's where UEFA could potentially lose, where we could be getting into a situation where UEFA is broken up or something like that. Um, not necessarily the clubs would just be able to go and create their own competition, but that, that, that things start to fracture a little bit. Um, but yeah, cool. we're getting into a lot bigger debates there than I suppose in this, this weekend's Premier League. Just yeah. on, I, w- I wonder how how naive it is of me to think it. But when you look back to that to last year when the Super League was announced and the plans for it, but look at the reaction from the fans. Yeah, like, the nature of and it, it wasn't just one club or whatever. And there was clubs. I'll be honest. You look at say Chelsea, who at that point and how their fans reacted, probably at the forefront of actually protesting against it. So much yeah. of what they have like. Maybe it's purely naive of me to think it, considering that maybe obviously there's going to be, you would imagine, TV, they're not going to be relying on, say, the attendances and all the rest of it. But the nature of how across Europe it did seem to be totally, it seemed to be from the outside. I mean, I don't know, maybe it was different. And you look, I say, some maybe Barcelona and some Real Madrid fans actually, because of well, more so Barcelona, realize what's actually going on with their own, with their own club and how far they are falling behind. But the nature of how it was totally just seemed fans seem to be absolutely disgusted by it and the nature of the protests like that that's not going to go away even if like you know what I mean like that will I think maintain and, I see, and it's those fans who are on the ground it's those fans who will actually be going to games yeah. it's not as if they had to fill stadium purely with tourists they just won't be able to but that's an interesting thing itself so the resistance in Spain and Italy was so much lessened and yeah. it's interesting so I've been told as well basically when all when it broke up people within UEFA basically realised they needed to get uh, people in England on side because they realised that other than Germany, who weren't really involved because Bayern and Dortmund rejected it, that most of the, res- most of the resistance is going to come from England, which is exactly what happened. And it does make me think, especially now given the fallout, given it's at the very least temporarily harder for these clubs, for the English clubs to go into the Super League. I would say if it actually happens and this court case develops in this way, which is still a few years off, I, I do I would say that any future Super League would be a Central European Super League with say the, the big ones involved Barca, Juventus, Real, or Real Madrid, and I wouldn't be surprised if they basically latch on to or because this is what they're trying to do at the moment, which is persuade medium tier sorry massive clubs from medium tier countries. So basically, you're talking. Celtic, Ajax, Porto, Benfica, all these clubs that have a huge European pedigree, but basically because they're in elite, they're in countries that are too small to sustain a big TV market, means they're in this kind of weird situation where they're too big for their own country, but not big enough for the Champions League. And that's what they could target. And, 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 and that's what I think that there is. Day, we, I mean, and say, even that, that, that would just be, that would just lose the whole point of it. Then it's not a Super League, is it? I know, but, but I suppose the point the point would be then that starts to generate momentum, and then suddenly, because what, what what would European football be? It would basically be a Premier League on one side, this Super League on another, and then I suppose it's about who wins that. Because then I think the, the, the calculation they would make that that would get so big mm. that then everyone else would have to follow in. Again, we're talking speculatively at the moment, but but this is this is mm. this is the way from from speaking to people involved. This is this is the way kind of 
some of this is beginning to kind of start to like small pieces are beginning to put in place. Yeah, there's a lot of hypotheticals there, obviously, that we're talking about. But um, on the other side of it, David, I suppose it does throw into sharp relief, like our own league here as well. And as we've seen with our involvement uh, in European competitions, but also even the 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 amount of prize money, we're talking like one million here, three million there for getting into a UEFA Conference League group stages. And the money we're talking about, obviously, if in some perspective, Super League in the future or even what the what Premier League clubs get through broadcast revenues, it just pales in comparison. Yeah, and I suppose if you consider the fact that it like the fact that St. Patrick's Athletic could end up possibly playing Manchester United in Europe, that just probably shows you why Manchester United were so keen to be involved in the Super League, I suppose. Like we literally earlier on before you came on again, literally talking about obviously here where you're still talking about not even clubs who don't want to play 52-week contracts, don't want to play lads in in pre-season. But like I don't know. It's just it's just it's it's very fractured. Everything just seems very at, at the top level is very fractured. But then even look at what happened. What needs to happen with with the League of Ireland? It's just it's basic stuff. That's the yeah yeah yeah. It's, it's so I don't know. We're talking about like, Jesus. It's, it's Monday morning, but I'm already depressed. <laughs> yeah, but even even that. I mean, what what we're saying about um that point you 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 referenced there, uh, Raf, about kind of English football hollowing out the rest of Europe. I mean, in some ways, really, actually. Ireland was almost a test case of this because being being so and and, I, and again this isn't to excuse bigger questions within Ireland that can still be rectified regardless. But being being so close to the English, I mean, Irish football basically one of the most influential moments in its history was when people could watch English football on TV from the late sixties. I think there is if you actually look at it, the correlate that suddenly brought a massive drop in attendances, and so much follows from that, and when you have a huge proportion of your audience solely interested in the bigger, more glamorous league over there, obviously affects everything within. And now this is happening right across Europe where the suit, because it's not even about English football anymore. It's about, about 10 to 12 super glamorous clubs that are so, that dominate so much of social media, dominate so much TV. It's really hard for anyone, for everyone, anyone else to kind of fight for their space. And that, and that does create trickle down problems then because they don't have the same money. They're all fighting for money now, and and that's where kind of suppose an element of dysfunction comes into it as well. But yeah, but yeah, as as David says, that 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 shouldn't excuse, you know, basic decisions. Yeah, I suppose the final point before uh, before we wrap up, um, I suppose the tenure of your piece was, I suppose, is it too big to fail and. Is there anything in the future? And it's obviously you don't wish it to fail because I think we do all we all enjoy the Premier League, and you know certainly I enjoy all the kind of other leagues that are there, whether it's our own one, La Liga, Serie A, whatever, whatever it is. I think it's the kind of the, the multitude of everything that makes it enjoyable. But hmm. is it is it too big to fail, or is there anything in the future that maybe threatens it? Because I know you mentioned some of the you know the the changes in the uh, in in broadcasting, it streaming coming in, and then you know the different platforms that are there that maybe the Premier League has actually been kind of slow to react to some of those. Um, well, I, mean, I completely agree. I, I, I think that's one of the, as, as great as modern football is in terms of the what you see in the pitch and as good, and even City would, would be an illustration of that. Uh, to me, it's one of the shames is that if all of it is so concentrated, we don't have that kind of, that variety that we used to, where, you know, it was more equal across continents, and there was kind of more beauty in more areas, or more, more kind of more elements of top level football matter, more, more kind of intrigue to it. Um, 
I, I suppose the, the European Super, the potential European Super League is a threat to the Premier League. The, the, the British economic and political climate is a threat to it. Um, but the, what really, the, what it actually comes down to is, I suppose it's a quite simple equation. The Premier League's strength is based on its immense broadcasting revenue. So the biggest threat is whether that broadcasting revenue is affected. Now, for the moment, that doesn't look to be the case. But we are seeing huge changes in the broadcast climate, which is basically, I mean, the, 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 the football broadcasting model is based on structures from 30 years ago, which is basically um, national licenses. And that's happened. That that's that's still in, and, and that's how the, the Premier League generates so much money because they sell, uh, you know, they, they sell their rights to individual broadcasters in each country or each market. Whereas that's now in a world where media is kind of increasingly globalized, where people want kind of instant streams, and that's going to present the challenge. Now you do have to innovate to keep ahead, but this is the issue, I suppose, when something is so in this way that well. It's much more difficult to innovate, and specifically with the Premier League actually vote on innovations when you're earning that much money because no one wants to risk undermining what they've got. And that means other leagues, and so this is what you've heard, like in so Spain are actually being really creative now and what next? And they've got like entire teams of voters to kind of look into this. And then for, for, the, for, the, for a good few years, we think, oh, that's not going to make any, any effect. And then suddenly, like what happened to the Premier League in the 90s, all of a sudden there's a switch and one one potential area of broadcasting, or whatever, is more influential than another. And then one one league is suddenly they've got years of a head start, and that's when things can actually you know unfold quite rapidly. And I, and I, of course the same happened to Syria. I mean, let's be like in the mid to late nineties, no one would have thought that Syria could have kind of that its era dominance could have crumbled in the way it did. But yeah, here we are, thirty years on, and. Syria, okay, it is actually having a slight resurgence. Well, it's been a bit of a joke for the last fifteen years. And this is Italy, the great, like one of the the great football cultures. Um, so I suppose, yeah, it's why even the Premier League and even all this product and all this money, they can't get too complacent either. Yeah, and I suppose one one final point on that as well. I think maybe the advantage the Premier League has, and I think you referenced it in your piece as well, is obviously it being part of the Anglo sphere. Uh, obviously that opens it up to the to the US market and also globally given just the preponderance of the English language in comparison to to any other language maybe Spanish maybe comes a little bit closer to it but um, the fact that globally I think English is sort of like the the language du jour that sort of yeah, uh, yeah. that does give it a sort of uh, that extra bit of advantage that maybe Serie A and Italian yeah, yeah. Would ne- wouldn't necessarily have and, e- and even that perspective I mean Spain used to dominate Latin America Especially like, and this, I suppose this is always shown with the way Ronaldo always wanted to go to Real Madrid. Luis Suarez always wanted to go to one of Barcelona, Real Madrid. Whereas now, even I remember like when I was like being half Spanish and we go to Spain every summer, 25 years ago, very few people could, ple- could speak English. Now, as is the case across the world, all the young people speak English, which only kind of strengthens that kind of that cultural framework for the Premier League. Yeah, which is frustrating because anytime I want to practice my Spanish, <laughs> they come back with English. Yeah. And just like, well, I'll have to just stick with the to the one language instead of the other couple of ones that I've learned. But anyway, Miguel Delaney, thanks a million for uh, taking the time. And also, uh, David Snade, thanks for coming on this week. No, but...